Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Yadvinder Mali is a professor of ecosystem science who joins us today to talk about ecosystem services, the importance of tropical rainforests, and his current work at the Wytham Woods. Yadvinder works at the School of Geography and the Environment at the University of Oxford, is a fellow at Oriel College, and is the president of the British Ecological Society. His research interests are the impacts of global change on ecology, structure and composition of terrestrial ecosystems, And from 2022, he'll be the director of a new centre focused on nature recovery at the University of Oxford. Just before the intro, Yedvinder has also mentioned that uh, he received the RGS 2018 Patrons Medal from the Society and only yesterday received received ACBE from Prince Charles. So congratulations, Yedvinder. (laughs) Quite an introduction. Thank you. Could you tell us a little bit about how you started life as an academic to begin this podcast and where it's taken you to today? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, I had a rather unusual academic path to geography. Uh, I went to university as an undergraduate uh, intending to be an astronomer and I studied physics uh, at Cambridge as an undergraduate. And while I was there, I I realized that astronomy involved a lot of sitting at computers, looking at, at screens, and I really enjoyed fieldwork, being out surrounded by the thing I was studying. It was, this was also the late 80s, and climate change was just emerging as an issue. I was reading books by James Lovelock on the Gaia hypothesis and, and how life influenced the planet. And I thought, this is a really interesting topic. Scientifically, it's really interesting. And also, it's, it's so relevant to the challenges that we're going to face over, over the coming decades. And so gradually shifted towards environmental uh, physics, essentially. And my PhD was on uh, meteorology at uh, Reading. Uh, and I, was, I, I spent a fair bit of time in arid places such as uh, the deserts of the Sahel, uh, looking at how vegetation affects the local climate in, in terms of evaporation and rainfall patterns. And there I really discovered a passion for fieldwork, for being out in uh, quite challenging and exotic places, working with local people and trying to understand the environmental challenges. And I found it immensely satisfying uh, uh, doing that. Uh, And then after my PhD, uh, some of the skills I'd learned as a meteorologist around measuring fluxes of uh, water or energy from vegetation to the atmosphere were then applied to a different challenge. And I took on a postdoc at Edinburgh University where I was asked to go to the Amazon to live uh, in the city of Manaus in Brazil on and off for several years and to work on a tower in the middle of the Amazon rainforest and uh, uh, measure the flow of carbon dioxide in and out of the forest to see, to answer the question, was the Amazon forest acting as a carbon sink and helping to slow down the rate of CO2 rise in the atmosphere? And uh, to what extent was this happening? And to what extent did this affect our projections of likely climate change over the coming decades? Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and so that's where I really became interested in ecology and realized that the problems that we needed to understand had to have an ecological dimension and more, be more than just about measuring fluxes to the atmosphere. And then ultimately that ecology 
took me to geography because I realized that while the problems can be described by the natural sciences, the solutions always seem to involve geography. And by geography, I mean they involve place-based understanding of, of places and context, and also multidisciplinary understanding. You need to understand people, you need to understand society and how they interact with the environment. And that's why now I find myself in, in a very happy place in describing myself as a geographer. You're in good company. Um, could we start by focusing on the biosphere and uh, explaining how it's responding to climate change at the moment? Uh, the biosphere is intricately related to, uh, to climate change, both firstly because it's affected by climate change. So as the atmosphere warms, there are parts of the biosphere that are particularly vulnerable, whether it's Arctic ecosystems or whether it's the forests of California or Australia uh, and many other more subtle effects uh, that, that we see. So the, the biosphere itself is a victim of climate change, but also the biosphere can be a big part of the solution towards climate change. As I described earlier, the, uh, the Amazon being a carbon sink is helping slow down climate change. If it wasn't doing that, we, we'd be in much greater trouble than we are now. Uh, but also uh, restoring the biosphere, slowing down deforestation, increasing the restoration of ecosystems uh, can be ways of both reducing the amount of climate change, but also helping us adapt to climate change, to the new uh, physical environment that we find ourselves in. Having a vibrant and resilient biosphere is definitely part of that solution of dealing with climate change. You said to me in an earlier call, Yadvinder, that um, biodiversity has a long history um, with humanity and not just a negative one. Um, what did you mean by that? Uh, yeah, sometimes there's a tendency to think about our current crisis or nature, the degradation of nature being something of modern times, that's some feature of modern industrial society. And the, one of the fascinating aspects of looking at the relationships between humans and the wider environment is that there's a long history of interconnection. And so, so many of the ideas that we sometimes perceive now, uh, like the idea of wilderness, that areas such as the Amazon or the, the game parks of Africa are somehow wild places, uh, miss this deeper understanding of the way humans and people have interacted and shaped these landscapes over thousands of years. And sometimes it's in negative ways. There certainly have been extinctions of species, whether it's on Pacific islands or uh, the mammoths and mastodons and humans first roamed out of Africa. Uh, but also there's a, there's a very positive aspect of, to that as well, that in many places, traditional societies have stewed, stewarded nature, shaped the species that are found, whether it's the fruiting species found in the Amazon rainforest or, or useful species found in the savannas of Africa. And humans have worked and shaped these environments through for, for thousands or tens of, of thousands of years. And that relationship is nuanced. Sometimes there are negative effects and sometimes there are, there are positive effects there. But we're deeply entangled with the natural world. We emerge from the natural world. And uh, uh, there's never been a phase when we've been somehow separate from it. You've mentioned there about humans shaping the natural world. Um, and in the introduction and in the first answer, we've talked about your work in the Amazon rainforest. Could you describe some of the challenges facing the tropics? Well, the tropics are one of the real crucibles of global change and this interaction between the atmosphere and the biosphere. They're immensely important. Over half of the planet's biodiversity is found in tropical forests uh, and they're hotspots of change. The rates of forest loss, of habitat loss are greater in the tropics now than they are 
anywhere else. And, uh, and beyond that, they also are affected by climate change. And one of the areas I work in the Amazon it is around how fires, as the climate warms and dries, how the, the, the fires are spreading into the Amazon rainforest, into ecosystems that are not adapted to, 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 to this fire regime. And we're seeing uh, increasing vulnerability there. And this matters uh, because, not only because if you're interested in the biodiversity of the Amazon, but if these fires spread, this carbon sink value that the Amazon has switches off and actually becomes possibly a carbon source. So rather than the biosphere helping us slow down climate change, it could actually start accelerating climate change. And that would further compound the challenge we face of stabilizing global climate to, say, less than two degrees or, or 1.5 degrees. And would that be an example of positive feedback with the Amazon changing from a sink to a source of carbon? Yes, yeah. yeah positive feedback uh, uh, is, uh, is, a, is an odd term. It comes from systems theory, but a positive feedback is one where when you change something, you accelerate more of that uh, change in, in, in that direction. So in this case, it's far from emotionally positive, but but uh, uh, the uh, the climate change and the degradation of the Amazon causes further climate change that could then cause further degradation of the Amazon and further climate change. So there is this tight coupling uh, between the biosphere and the atmosphere. Uh, that we find there, we find in many other places of the world as well. And that's one of the key things that I try and understand in, in our research. It sounds really exciting. You also have other um, research projects up in the Arctic, I believe. And what exactly is the Pleistocene Park and what did you do there? Uh, this is also another new project uh, uh, that's just kicking off. Uh, uh, as I described earlier, the Amazon potentially experiences this positive feedback and what's sometimes called a tipping point in climate change. Another key tipping point of concern is uh, what may be happening in the high Arctic, where there's a huge amount of carbon stored in the permafrost, uh, the permanent, permanently frozen ground. And one fear is in a warming world, this carbon would start being released to the atmosphere and just like with the Amazon, start acting as an accelerator of climate change. And now in the far east of Siberia, there's a rather unusual uh, uh, Russian team, a father and son team, who have been looking at this question for a while. And they also looked, at the, again, at the deep human history of the Arctic and argue that when you go back 10,000 years, there was a an ecosystem that no longer exists now, a huge grassland that's extended from uh, Siberia to, to Britain, uh, that was the largest biome on Earth, uh, called the Mammoth Steppe. And this was maintained by large animals grazing and eating and defecating and providing an intense nutrient cycle that maintained this. And it's argued that the extinction of these early animals, possibly by the first humans arriving in this landscape, hunting them out, shifted this entire ecosystem into the tundra that we see now. And what these Russians are proposing is to bring back, well, they're not proposing, they already have brought back bison and camel and musk oxen and horses and a range of other animals into a small area of land in Siberia to create this new ecosystem. And what we're doing is going in there uh, and doing the science around this to test out this idea. What's happening to the carbon stores? What's happening to the energy balance, the local microclimate? And could introducing animals into bits of the Arctic be another approach to, to mitigating climate change, tackling climate change, while also rebuilding lost biodiversity and lost ecosystems? 
And you can currently have a project across the landscapes of the UK, um, which is recovery focused on what um, could be done. Could you explain a bit more about your research and its significance? Uh, yes, I'm very excited by the, the prospect of looking at nature recovery, not just looking at how we stop bad things happening to ecosystems, whether it's the Amazon or the Arctic. And I think it's important to think about how we stop those bad things happening, but also to turn to an agenda of how we can make good things happen. How can we bring back nature into a depleted landscapes? And this is really the focus of the new centre that, that we mentioned at the, at the introduction. And uh, I, I think uh, it, it's a very timely uh, thing to do uh, globally, but particularly in the UK, uh, one thing I, I know from working in places like Brazil is people frequently commented, well, you're concerned about the Amazon and what's going on here, and that's great. But you're living in one of the most deforested, most biodiversity, depauperate countries on Earth. And uh, what about your own the home patch as well? And I think this is really important that uh, to, to recognise that, that landscapes that we see as somehow traditional or cultural in the UK are extremely depleted in, in lots, of the, lots of their nature. And I think there's a... With the COVID pandemic and increased recognition of nature, there's a real interest and momentum uh, to, to do something about improving the state of nature uh, locally as well. And one of the focuses of this centre is to focus on our local landscapes around Oxfordshire, but also in other places in, in the UK, and look at how we can improve the state of nature, uh, leverage all the resources that are potentially available to do that, uh, private or public, but also recognising the social and cultural and economic factors around food production and farming. And it's a complicated problem, as it is everywhere else in the world. It's, there's no easy solutions to this. But uh, but there is a momentum and will to, for things to be different from where they were for the last few decades. And, and it's quite fascinating to just think through, through think through that challenge and actually try and deliver real change at, at a local level. Finally, uh, I understand you attended COP26. Um, and in that conference, um, there was some advancement and progress made on coal cars, cash and trees. Um, it's also had some criticism uh, levelled at it. How do you feel about the conference and our immediate future in 2022 going forward? Uh, I think uh, the conference itself was, it was a huge event, uh, 30,000 people. So it's always quite hard to, to work your, navigate your way around that. I've been to a few cops now. But uh, and so there's many different stories on depending on where you were. But my overall impression was actually on the more positive end, uh, having been to a few of these. And uh, that's because I think uh, uh, it's important to recognize the limits of what this U international UN framework can do. It's important because it brings everybody to the same table, whether they're small island countries or whether it's China or the UK or the US. And there's no other forum that brings everybody together on a more or less equal platform to have their voice. But also that makes it very difficult to make fundamental deep progress because you have to have everyone on board. And I think overall this meeting did actually make quite deep progress and were both in the, the, the slightly more boring logistics of how to deal with reaching these targets, but also I think in moving the goalposts about what we talk about in a more positive direction. So in Paris, which is regarded as, as a benchmark of, of a positive meeting, but after Paris, the agreement was to talk about limiting temperature rise below two degrees and peaking temperature in the latter half of the 20th century. What we, talk, what we talked about in Glasgow was 1.5 degrees and the middle of the 20th century. 
And so the goalposts are shifting in a more ambitious direction. And it doesn't mean that the actual delivery won't be challenging and complicated and messy. But I think for that uh, international process, is working as it as it should in bringing people aboard. I think what we shouldn't do is expect the international process to be the entire solution to climate change. What it does is give an overall framework, and it's really delivery uh, through uh, through technology, through government policy uh, at the national level. That's ultimately going to be the solution. But I think you know, if you ask me, I think climate change is fundamentally solvable uh, through a mix, uh, and we have the solutions already. Uh, to some extent, many of them are technological, the, uh, the renewable energy, uh, etc. The challenge is to accelerate those solutions fast enough to scale the scale we need to, to stabilize temperature as quickly as we need. And again, that's acceler- practical uh, challenges of accelerating vested interests, such as fossil fuels, that are not so interested in that transition being so fast. So there's, there's challenges there. But uh, and I, I certainly... We have a long way to go, but I felt actually this was significant progress in, 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 in meeting those goals. It's heartening to finish on such a positive note. Thank you so much for joining us today, Edvinda. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.